Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Josh Gondelman, who is a colleague of mine. I first encountered him when I recruited him onto the last post in the gargle and he has just been such a delight to work with over the years and I'm really pleased to be able to bring you um, this facet of him in the context of a Tea with Alice conversation. We talked about the expectation to prosper in ways that were sort of recognisable by previous generations, you know, buying a house, moving to the suburbs. We talked about community mutual aid. We talked about effective altruism and fuck you-ness. And I, I just, it's just one of these really wonderful conversations with a really thoughtful and lovely guy. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Find Josh Gondelman at joshgondelman.com. His work is always just genuinely delightful and joyful and he does make the world a better place. You can find me online at at alliterative on Twitter and Instagram, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E or patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. That's where you can find all of my stand-up specials for free. You can find my blogs and podcasts, my weekly Tea with Alice salons and my weekly writers meetings if you want to write with me. Somebody tweeted me today to ask what level subscription makes the writers meetings available um, and it's all levels. I, at the moment, sort of basically since the pandemic, I haven't felt super comfortable with paywalls uh, because I know that a lot of people are really struggling and particularly for community. So uh, basically, I haven't reintroduced the, the levels of access Basically, if you just come on, you can come on the salons and you can come to the writers' meetings at even if it's just a dollar a month. At some point, I may reinstitute some striations of <laughs> internal Patreon class. But for now, it's just um, pay what you would like and take what you feel would make your life better from the Patreon stance. That's all from me. I will stop rambling and let you get on with listening to the conversation. You're having tea with Alice. Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? Hello, Alice. Thank you for having me for tea. I'm Josh Gondelman. I'm a comedian and, and writer and um, you might hear my dog. I'm a p- pug father, <laughs> husband, um, taxpayer, <laughs> brother. Um, and I'm drinking a, <laughs> it's like a raspberry lime spindrift. Oh. Do you have spindrift? I do not have a spindrift. Please explain. It's like... 95% seltzer, 5% juice, and they make them in cans, and they, yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, yeah, I, I know what that is. That's, yes. That's what you'd call fizzy water and juice yes. in my household. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just, it's, the, this is just the brand. It's like the predominant fizzy water and juice brand, I think, sweeping the nation right now. It's such an exciting drink. It is an underrated drink for the amount of, like, joy and excitement, I think. 5% juice goes a long way. Yeah. And, and the fizzy water just lifts the whole thing. I I am approving of your choice of tea. Thank you. Um, sort of a sort of a fizzy fruit tea. I'm of the opinion that everything counts as tea if you think about it for long enough and in the wrong way. <laughs> I think that's hard to disagree with. <laughs> I'd have, have a hard time <laughs> saying that if you think of something wrong, you can't square any circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what have you been wrestling with of late? Okay, so I've got a couple things. One is the idea of the expectation to prosper uh, in, like, personal financial ways, the way that, like, generations before us have. Like, the specifically the idea of, like, ah. the concept of owning a home 
feels like it feels like such a uh logical thing to attempt and then in terms of like oh this is where my life is i'm a married person we're happy we like stability in our lives and then a completely preposterous thing to attempt in that it's 2023 and we live in new york city and it just feels impossible and it just seems and and then from there it kind of spirals out to think about like the greater erosion of and and like striation of like extreme wealth and everyone else and so that's something I've been wrestling with lately if we want to start there yeah I think that's a really interesting thing to think about and and not just in like a shallow way where it's like oh boo millennials don't get to buy their own houses it's sort of first of all it makes you question whether anybody should have ever had the expectation to buy their own house yeah you know, like peasants didn't own their own homes. Mm-hmm. They were owned by the lords. And that was how it was for a long time. You had people kind of owned by the land that they lived on mm-hmm. in a, a, a weird sort of mutual beneficial arrangement. Sure. And then we got this weird flowering of sort of culture and prosperity that meant that this was something we could aspire to or should aspire to or whatever yeah. it is, that, 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 that the marker of success was owning your own home sort of in the place that you grew up or something similar. Yeah. The way that I see it manifesting in like my kind of cohort is people moving further and further and further away out of cities. Yes. That's definitely something that we've seen and something that like my we being my wife and I have seen and something that like it's kind of a bummer on two levels. One, where in the city in part because that's where the people that we want to hang out with are so when they move it's like oh it's it's like another reminder of how unaffordable cities are big picture and it's like oh and those people that we wanted to be near are being siphoned away by this other thing and so it's really something that like you know and and so i i say it on stage this way because it's true but it's i have some money which is like not a place where I personally was for my whole adult life, you know, like I've, I've never, I've never been at at risk of becoming unhoused, which is very fortunate, but it wasn't like I had money for like any little thing. And now I kind of do from having worked pretty steadily in television for the last several years. So like I have some money. And so it's like, well, if we can't do the next big thing, like what do we what are we do- what am i doing and so like i feel a lot of like well what is the the most helpful way to use this like some money where i can and like using it to like for community you know mutual aid stuff in the community there's still in the united states there's so many people are just like oh yeah i was sick for 3 days and now my medical bills are $12,000 you know so like there's yeah. a lot of like gofundme stuff lucky. yeah right 120,000 yeah. if you're not absolutely you know. and that's you know that's like oh I, I we we had a child and now we're in enormous medical debt which just seems outrageous like that's it's like an, an injustice and so i'm coming from this place of like immense privilege especially relatively speaking and i'm just kind of like what does one do? Does that make sense? That does make sense. Am I too shallow? Am, is this too no, shallow? No, this is not shallow at all. Okay. I think it's a really interesting question and something to wrestle with, particularly when it comes to things like mutual aid. Because I think in America particularly, 
I think it feels like it. I mean, okay, I've I lived in America for one year, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm not speaking from a position of great expertise, but it feels like a dangerous place. Yeah, and I don't mean that in in. <laughs> any kind of pejorative right. way. Crime, overrunning our cities. No, I mean sort of, yeah, I was very conscious that if I sprained my ankle, you know, I would need to go through a massive insurance process yeah. rather than, you know, here in Australia where I had a baby. I spent four days in the hospital afterwards. It wasn't entirely uncomplicated. And then I walked out and I, I sort of checked in with the front desk. I was like, oh, we're leaving. And they're like, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and the lady wrote something on a, on a sheet of paper, but I didn't have to sign anything wow. to take the baby. You know, it was just... That, that was, I went through the public system. I have private health insurance, mm-hmm. but I went through the public system because I looked at the statistics and it's basically the same thing. You're slightly more likely to have an intervention if you go in the private system uh, because they'll make more money off you, mm-hmm. basically. And that's how I was like, oh, I'll just go to the public system. Sure. But to return to the point, in this unsafe feeling environment, yeah. this, this consciousness that there are people who are on the very edge of their tolerance, this consciousness that you are only a few steps away from trouble at any time, you know. uh, There are two responses that I think are natural. One is to build a fortress, to make you and your people safe by buying guns, by moving to the suburbs, by protecting yourself, by isolating yourself from others or only forming community with people who are like you, who sure. have the same experience of life as you because you have a natural kind of affinity for them for whatever religion or mm-hmm. race or socioeconomic group or business colleagues or whatever it is, you form these like very tight groups. And I think on balance, you're actually safer making the world around you a better place. Yeah, it seems that way, right? Like it seems like... Where, where you can communities with more community uplift and like resources shared by everybody, right, are safer communities. And, and it just, yeah. So it's like, again, this is the thing of uncertainty. This isn't me being like, I can't sleep at night because I have some money now. This is me saying like, this is something that I'm like, I as an adult I, and, and as like a, a an adult living in, in America currently, I'm like, oh, how do you be a person? Like, what are the obligations? And I think in some places, right, there is like an amount of like the government does a better job of, um, you know, using tax money from citizens to take care of, or from people who live there, forget citizens, but tax money of the people in the country to take care of the people living there. And I think here there isn't. And it's like, to what degree do I have the opportunity and obligation to like help take care of the people around me? And then to what degree is it reasonable to like my full-time job ended last July and I had a part-time job that was running kind of through the fall. And I'm like, okay, it could be a while before the next thing happens. So like, how do I balance caring? Like you're saying, building that, that not a fortress against my community, but like, you know, hoarding for winter in the way a bear or a squirrel might versus yeah. like showing outward care to people outside that circle. And it's it's something that I think about a lot. Yeah, I think it's something that's worth worth thinking about. I think when I saw the ad for the Tesla truck mm-hmm. that was kind of essentially as far as I could read and it could just be my own politics coming in, um, it was a it was a vehicle that was designed 
against looters and rioters. Oh, I didn't know that. Part of the selling point, although that failed, was um, you could hit the hit the window with a with a baseball. Oh, I saw that a metal yeah. ball. Yep. and it failed to do the thing. But you're thinking, in what context is that a threat that you're contemplating in your life? I was thinking about that today. I saw a video today where someone whipped the metal ball at the window and it and it held. Like the it didn't stick there, but it held. The window held up, and I was like what life are you living that that's like something you're worried about is cannon fodder. Yeah, what life are you contemplating that you're building a world in which if you're a billionaire, no matter what, you're going to have to use the roads. You're going to have to operate in society unless you really want to live on, you know, an island completely separated from everyone else. Which I think most of them don't, though. No, most of you don't. Most people want to be able to go down to the shops and have yep. a cup of coffee and, and sit in a park and and be safe. Yes. And I feel like the only way, really, that you can be safe is... There's two kind of forks to this, because I'm going to slightly contradict myself. That's but, right. like, yeah, if the people around you are secure and comfortable, mm-hmm. then they don't need to steal from you or smash yeah. the window of your cyber Shark. truck. Uh, you know, thefts of things like televisions mm-hmm. have gone down massively, massively. And in fact, all kind of uh, theft has gone down except for like financial thefts yeah. because people can afford to buy things because those goods are now cheaper. Yeah, I'm wondering how these kind of supply issues out of China will change that, mm-hmm. whether you'll start seeing people lifting a flat screen TV again. But the one thing that's really correlated with these kind of reductions in that kind of petty crime, at least, is people not needing to do it right so few people are stealing things like televisions like for the love of the game right like (laughs) because they either it is like a a vocational for them right stealing and 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 reselling or whatever or stealing and scrapping or because they they're just like the kind of not proverbial, but like the, you know, the storied, like, well, you, these these people can't be taught. They're just going to steal TVs. And it's like, that's myth. You know what I mean? That's like yeah. not how people are. The crime is correlated with the people needing the things that they're stealing for the most part. Yes. As far as I can tell, for the most part, that seems to be true. I could be being like really naive, but I don't think I am. And I you know, even just in my own ethical sphere... I, one example is uh, I listen to audiobooks, mm-hmm. right? And uh, audiobooks are available through a streaming service that I use, that I'm subscribed to. I pay whatever it is, $15 mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. uh, and I can download books and, or I can buy them individually. I get like one credit a month and then on top of that I can, so I get one free book and then I get other things. If I'm in a book reading uh, mode, I have been known to download many, many, many books, okay. um, particularly before uh, my baby was born. But... You can also get it via the library. Mm-hmm. With my library membership to my local library, I can get these books for free. I am now in my life making enough money that I prefer to pay for the things. Sure. Even if I could go to the library and, and that same book would be available, I like to, it's not that I like to own it, it's that I like to contribute. Sure. To, you know, and I think, of course, you know, authors get royalties from library library borrowers. But I think an audiobook is something slightly different because you have the performer and the editor mm-hmm. and there's like it's a much bigger production. And I, I think that it's it's nice for me as somebody who has done audiobooks yeah. to have to be part of that. I don't know. I feel really comfortable in a way that when when I was not 
so comfortable financially, I, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as like, I, I feel like you go to see a band play and you go, I don't know how often I'll wear this hat, but like, it's a cool hat. And yeah. I know that I'm putting the whatever, $20, $25 in the pocket of the performer, where in a way that like, not even the tickets to the venue always go right to them in the same fashion, you know? And so like, the, the, support it, you know, spending not like a voting with your dollars capitalist pressure type thing but like in that smaller sphere of like I value this person's art and I want to pay money for it in a way that they get a piece and I think that feels like a small nice thing to do when you when you're in a comfortable position especially yes and it's interesting because you don't have to be that comfortable no. To want to do that. Like, it, it, it's sort of almost the, f- the moment I started. So, I, you know, I'm in a lucky position and I've never been in significant debt. But there was a while there, particularly when I was starting out, where I was very hovering around zero. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. there would be days where I was like, oh, maybe I should go to this, like, thing at the university where they have free lunch. Sure. You know, that, that kind of sure, sure, sure. vibe. Or I'll stop by the, the Whole Foods because they do free samples. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just that. I was that at that level of, yeah. of starting out in, in a comedy career. Yeah. But yeah, it was very quickly, the moment I had just a little bit of money sitting there, you know, and then my income would come in and come out on top of that. Like, it was like maybe a few hundred dollars in my account that I started to feel like giving back. I don't know if this is true. And maybe this is me just like confirmation bias uh, saying this, but I do think that like when you are in a line of work that relies on that kind of support, you feel it keenly, right? You go, oh, I know the way this money works in this industry. Yeah. And it, and I know that I can, you know, put 10, 15, 20 bucks in this person's pocket r- rather than, you know, and, and then, and then because that's what I rely on too. You know what I mean? I think there's also, I I don't know if you have this too, but I feel like when you start in something like comedy, something that's like kind of opaque in terms of its pay structure from the outside, right? There aren't job postings, comedian, uh, this much per year plus benefits, right? Yeah. Benefits. It'll, it's like, (laughs) it's, um, only drawbacks. (laughs) It's (laughs) so when you're, when you're working in kind of an opaque, industry I think people on the outside like people in my life even just like have no idea what the financial scale is when you go when you pay money to see a comedy show right like when you would go to like a a, when I would when I would be doing shows around Boston and people you know they know oh I'm opening I'm the opening act on the show people pay $20 to see the show there's 200 people there they go oh well this is roughly how much money is in the air and then you but they don't know who's getting what cut you know does that make sense yeah the venue the producer the advertising costs absolutely the the whole thing every every ticket the venue takes a cut and they take all the food and bar and so it's like oh they're making 100 200 400 dollars the performers are getting 700 total dollars of this 400 or four thousand dollars let's say that's like in the air yeah yeah I'm interested in this. I want to talk about it, the impulse to give, and I don't want to sound like it's like me congratulating myself. No, no, no. But, 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 but one of the things that I think is really interesting, and this is just a side note, and it's not meant as a reproach to anybody, but the people who I know who are doing really well in life, mm-hmm. people who are really financially stable, are more often the people who will ask for comps to shows. 
Oh, really? So I, okay. I often have to make it very explicit that I want artists to ask me for comps, that I want people who can't mm-hmm. afford it to ask me. Uh, we can do it. We can arrange something. If they, sure. if they can't pay for it, we'll figure something out. You can, like, do some admin for me for an hour yeah. or something. You know, like, I, I want to have that on the table because I know there's times when I wanted to go to a thing that I couldn't afford mm-hmm. to go. But I think that people who are, like, working in a bank or something and then they want a comp ticket to your show because they want to feel special. Sure, 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 sure. Like for them, a comp ticket is a, being a VIP. It's being an important person, and they want to be—they want to feel like they're being treated like a like special a person. Because it does feel great to oh, be yeah. a VIP. I was thinking about that recently um, because I have—I don't know if you've read John Hodgman's book Medallion Status, which I love. I'm a big John Hodgman fan. Not yet, fan. but I'd love to. I love this book specifically. It is kind of just about like privileged spaces and like the joy of access in in all the different ways, like ways that he has experienced that ways that he has been denied that. Um, And through medallion status, right? Like airline flights, uh, airline status uh, (laughs) as the kind of like overriding metaphor for that feeling. And I think about that so much. I try to buy a ticket to a show if I'm going to sit in and enjoy the show, you know what I mean? As long as I'm not on it, in which case I'll just hang out. But like I bought tickets to a friend's show and then uh, a friend's band recently. And then he was like, Oh, that's great that you're coming. Like oftentimes they'll go would have, you know, would have comped you for the show, but like go to VIP and you'll get this thing and you can stand in this area or like come hang out afterwards. They won't hassle you. And it's like, it's not because I can, I can afford the concert ticket. I, yeah. But it is, Always a thrill it's to nice. have any kind of it's... special access uh, to a friend's thing and be like, "Ooh, this is so nice!" Like it, I, I'm like, <laughs> I really get a kick out of it in a way that's like borderline uh, embarrassing. But I do. I just feel like it feels so. That is to say, like you were saying, not a reproach. I understand the drive. I'm saying I'm right there with you to feel special. But it is also like, it is a a mitzvah, as they would say, to buy the ticket if you can afford the ticket. Yes, or to bring a, a lot of friends. If someone comps you in, then you you know recommend the show, or you yes. know you pass it on in some other way. You buy the merch, right? That like I was talking about before. Someone's got a T-shirt, they comp you. You buy the T-shirt, even if you're not going to wear it. You put it, you fold it, you put it in a drawer, and when you're looking for a T-shirt, it's a nice memory, and, and you've done, you know, you've like fulfilled that part of this kind of social cultural contract. Yeah, one of those kind of the sidelines of this of this conversation that. I made a little peg in my head with is the idea of making the world a better place isn't mm-hmm. inevitably you're never going to be 100% safe if you're a billionaire if you have bodyguards like there's never there's never going to be a, a guarantee because life is dangerous you can you know I have a friend whose best friend was walking I had a backpack on not on a high surface just tripped over uh, fell over and broke their neck Oof. and died you can't control that kind of thing. No matter what these, you know, wealthy futurists think, all the people alive now will die. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, unfortunate. You don't want to be on your deathbed surrounded by bodyguards firing at your <laughs> IV. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just opening fire. <laughs> like, it's penetrated the skin. So, like, there's no, even freak accidents aside, and and you can't take it, like, the idea of you can't take it with you aside. The, just your physical safety is finite. Yeah. Yeah. I read this interesting article. This is a slight tangent, but I, I think sort of vaguely in the same area. Uh, by that guy who did um, the four-hour work week. 
He's one of those hustle culture. Oh, is it Tim Ferriss? Yeah, I'm not a massive fan of his work, but I thought this was a really excellent and interesting and sort of heartbreaking article. He had been the subject of somebody's suicide video. Essentially, oh, gosh. they had they had um, sent him this message, basically. Yeah saying your work really affected me profoundly and anyway just terrible devastating thing that he was suddenly the target of this person's sort of last moments and and he really it really affected him wow Ooh. and the insight that he had is one that i often think about yeah which is that there are a certain number of people I, I think about it in order to keep me balanced when people say nice things about my work sure. or when people say horrible things about my work. Sure. There are a certain number of people in the world who are just off the rails. They are just, you know, mad essentially. Sure. And the more your influence spreads, the more your fame spreads, mm -hmm. the more likely you are to accidentally touch one of these people. Mm -hmm. Literally, sort of the bigger you are, the more likely you are to yeah. accidentally bump into them. And so you can't, you can't take it personally when somebody attacks you who's clearly not in their right mind or when somebody latches onto you because you're the symbol of something for them right. or when they kind of make you into something either good or bad that's a proxy for something else that's going on in their head. Sure. You just have to accept that is part of being large yeah no i understand and i say that as somebody who's you know small to medium size <laughs> yeah i think that is right there there are people dealing who who are living with whether it's internally or externally circumstances that you couldn't change with your best effort and it's and it's not right you you're tangential to their life in a way that like you can't take on that responsibility. And and I think even on the smaller point, right, this is just, just kind of free-flowing from there, not to diminish your point, but, like, the more people who know of you generally, the greater, even if not the greater percentage, but the greater raw number of people who are like, fuck you, is going to grow, yes. right? Yes. If you're performing for a crowd, let's say, any kind of performance, if you're playing a folk song and three people are like, this isn't for me, chances are that three people out of whatever 100 is going to be six people out of 200 right and it's just yep. like the more the more people are aware of you the the greater quantity of that is and i think that's hard to grapple with on both sides right it's also the greater quantity of people that will appreciate and enjoy the things you're doing but like at a certain point that doesn't feel like more does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just have like a lot of sympathy for people who, even when the, the material conditions of their life are very good, it is like, especially because of social media, because everyone can have kind of immediate access to uh, people in the world in a way that they didn't have even 20 years ago. There's just so much more directed at you right and so like on one hand you can try to be a good person who is not the kind of person that is widely despised yeah which i think both of us we try we go above and beyond we we to, give it our either best like shot. benevolence or pathology like yeah whatever whichever oh, whatever that is a little bnp i do like yeah. to be nice but i think when especially when you are 
not this is not Tim Ferriss. I don't I don't mean to yeah. guess it, but when you are let's say an Elon Musk, right? Like just by the amount of wealth you have, you are making people's lives materially worse. Yeah. My friend Laura Davis has a great joke in her most recent show about billionaires and just saying how embarrassing oh. to show the world how much you think you need to be happy. Yeah. And I mean, sort of Elon is an interesting character because he articulates his ambition as a kind of a, a, a ambition for the world that he wants to take people to Mars, where that he wants to t- further f- humankind, that he does all these kind of experimental, you know, clean power things. Mm-hmm. Or I, I think that's a, a, a fascinating thing because I never know, and I don't think anyone can ever know except him, Yeah, uh, how much of that is PR, mm-hmm. how much of that is, you know, he's a billionaire. He's not doing this in an uncalculated way, despite the fact that his affect is of this kind of tech bro Freewheel, who doesn't watch yeah. his words. Yeah. Like he's... He's got enough money to have people go, uh, excuse me, this yeah. is the image we're putting out of you. So th- you have to assume that he's being carefully calculated and when he's not being carefully calculated, that's deliberate. Yes. So I don't know whether his ambitions for space travel are just to get attention for his business or whether right. he genuinely believes in this science fiction future, that he needs all this money to make this science fiction future happen. And then there's another level of even if he believes that does that make it remotely possible and then above that if it's possible is it good do you know what i mean yes is this the correct ambition or is this a deranged and deluded ambition when there are so many prior things or more important things that you don't get to just because you're a billionaire you don't get to choose what's important for mankind right it's this valorization of these grand characters in history who built the railways or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And didn't matter how many people died building the railways. Now the railways are built. Yes. And the workers are on strike and they're not going anywhere. But it is a kind of a of a of ambition that I think we culturally value. But I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that I think it's cool. Like, I have this impulse that I'm like, yeah, that's cool to want to go to Mars. That's cool, isn't I agree. It? I think it's it is cool, cool to, to want, want to go, go to, Mars. to Mars. Yeah. But it's cool for me to want to go to Mars. I'm not sure if I had a billion dollars it would be cool for me to – I don't know. Like, I'm, I feel very conflicted about it. There are lots of things that are, like, cool but aren't priorities. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. You know – and I think that that's the kind of thing, like, when you have enough money to make the, like, cool th- – like, smoking looks cool, but if your priority is, like, yeah, I smoke a lot of cigarettes, <laughs> then that's not, like, a cool way to, like – I want to smoke as many cigarettes – I want to smoke more cigarettes than anyone ever yeah. has. Yeah. It's not – that's not, like, a good way to live. I, I think that's an imp- – obviously, it's an imperfect analogy, but do you know what I mean? Like, it's yes. cool – like, there's lots of stuff that's cool to talk about – but it it's but less cool to do. And then there's probably some stuff that's the other way, where it's less cool to talk about and fine to do. Well, I sort of extend this out to, like, my general feeling about politics, which is that we shouldn't... I know I write a lot of satirical uh, news comedy based on politicians, mm-hmm. but I almost think we shouldn't know who our politicians are. Like, we shouldn't have feelings mm-hmm. about our politicians. We mm-hmm. should have feelings about policies. Yeah. A politician's personality is only ever going to be a distraction from the reality. It's so hard though, right? Because like, 
it's so hard to just elect policy and then it's yes. so hard to create policy without some kind of efficacious personality right so it's like it's like such a I, I'm so with you. I wish you could just elect, like, a document yes. <laughs> to, to office. <laughs> and and it's because it's like, yeah, that's what I want there, what's on the page. But then it's like, well, the, then there's, like, some P.T. Barnum that's, like, doing all this other stuff and either blocking that from happening or enacting a totally different agenda. It's so, it's so difficult. And it's like, I, this, I think, kind of comes back to, like, the preliminary question that I am mulling over is like, how do you do the most reasonable amount of good? And I think that's it, right? That gets back to Mars where it's like going to Mars is not using however many billion dollars to do the most reasonable amount of good. Yes. It's not, it's not what they, I mean, the effective altruism movement is also super interesting in this context because you see it. I mean, it's sort of fallen. It's had a, a bit of a, spotlight cast on it in recent times because it's no longer being sort of um, front manned by people like Peter Singer or, or whatever mm-hmm. these kind of benevolent characters it's being front manned by Sam Bankman Fried who has perpetrated what may be the largest fraud in the economic history of the world like yeah. this is uh, this is a man who publicly was the face of, of effective altruism <laughs> he was both ineffective and yes. not altruistic. Not altruistic. Well, it's sort of shown how much of the effective altruism movement, that there is a certain proportion of it, it's sort of difficult to quantify, but there's a certain proportion of it that is be using that philosophy to justify just making money for yourself. Yeah. On the theory that at some point you will be rich enough to do something good with it and that that good will be effective. Yeah. But the idea of withholding money from a beggar because you want to give money to a malaria charity because buck for buck that's more yes. bang for your buck. Yep. It feels ooh, feels squirrely. You know. Yeah. It feels like the kind of thing that you can start to calculate when you're a billionaire and therefore maybe that you should have the moral obligation to calculate when you're a billionaire. Yeah. It's hard for me to see like a person in need and think my money could be better applied elsewhere does that make sense yes where it's like i had this recently where i was in the the dunkin donuts in my neighborhood and there was a guy who was like can you get me something to eat and i go yeah and the the guy behind the counter clearly and i have immense sympathy for for him has been hectored by this dude clearly for a while and so i'm not i don't think this guy was in the wrong he's like you don't have to buy him something to eat. And I'm like, I'll get him something to eat. And he was like, I was like, what do you want? And he was like, two egg and cheese sandwiches. And I was like, just give him the two egg and cheese sandwiches. And he's like, you got a couple bucks? And I go, yeah. And uh, I go, here, take a couple bucks. And I got my, I put in my order. And he was like, you know, just give me a couple bucks. I don't need the sandwiches. And I was like, okay, buddy. And uh, I gave him a couple <laughs> bucks. And and I and then I tipped the the guy behind the counter. And he and then he goes, hey, let me get some of that. I go, that's not yours. I, I gave that to him. I gave you a couple bucks. I gave him a couple bucks. This is what we're doing here. And the guy behind the counter goes, why are you doing this, man? You know he's going to go buy drugs. And it's like, yeah, I just am a squishy guy and I have a hard time if this guy comes into the coffee shop where I'm buying a coffee and I have the whatever five bucks that he's asking for just sitting on my person. I can just hand. I'm like, I'm probably just going to do it. Yeah, because and, and this is where I think 
so you've got these kind of the, these different vectors, right? Selfishness, self-protection, and then kind of this effective altruism idea of calculating the good that you can do. Mm-hmm. And then community and making the place around you safer and making yourself yeah. feel better. So I think in this context, giving the guy a couple of bucks is like getting yourself a pedicure. It sure. might be an entirely selfish act. Mm-hmm. Like it might just be self-indulgence. Sure. Yeah. And this idea of calculating effective altruism, how good that you're, how, you know, bang for buck, all of that, that stuff, I think is, it's not wrong. It is a good impulse. Yeah. But it is impossible to quantify the good that you could do. Maybe that five bucks is the five bucks that makes tips that guy over the edge of no longer being desperate. It, maybe it's sure. enough that his head goes above water and he sure. can actually see the world for a second because he's not yeah. stressing out about money, he's not stressing out about getting his next fix. He can have yeah. a deep breath and maybe that changes his life. You don't sure. you can't quantify yeah. that. And to try to quantify it, I think would be Wrong, because it's not just money you're giving. You're giving a moment of humanity. You're giving a moment sure. of personhood to somebody who is often ignored or made to feel like a non-person by virtue of being you know, on drugs and not having a house and you know all of yeah. those things, which particularly in America doesn't feel that far away for a lot of people. Right. It's an experience that there aren't a lot of guardrails preventing for a lot of people. And, and so, you know, I would have rather bought him the two sandwiches. Yes. But I think the guy by the counter, by the time he was like, I don't want the sandwiches, was like, then I'm not making the sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's fair. I'm not going to make you make sandwiches he doesn't want. <laughs> I mean, that feels, yeah, like working at the law firm where the partners are squeezing the clients to give you work that they don't want to give you and yep. they're squeezing the grads to provide the work that yep. they don't want to do. It just feels like, oh, gross, yep. everyone's being squeezed. I don't know. I just feel like clearly this guy is having a hard day. Yeah. And And like, I don't think on the other hand that my five bucks – was what was standing between him and drugs, ultimately. <laughs> yeah. At a certain level, you're going to get the drugs. Or it's going to be a worse day. And so I'm like, I hope he wants the sandwich. Also, and I, I think this is where we get into maybe the realm of unquantifiableness. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm, I'm half, I'm, again, this is one of these things where there's no clean answers for me. I don't mm-hmm. know how I feel about it, where I'm halfway torn between, no, you should give the money to the malaria charity because you can save X amount of lives with X yeah. amount of money. And that's like, that's a good thing. That's a better thing than helping some person on the street. But at the same time, it's much better to help the person in front of you because mm-hmm. I think in the context of the person in front of you where you're giving him that $5, you're not just giving him $5. You are giving him the act of somebody giving him $5. And that feels some, like that feels like something, that somebody goes, oh, you're a person, I'm going to help you, you deserve help. And maybe that doesn't make an impact on his life, and maybe it does. Yeah. The thing that feels the most sincere and the most, like, useful, I have a friend who does, as part of, like, a general, like, food distro, like, fresh grocery distro, does a diaper distribution not too far from where I live in Brooklyn and I do a regular contribution to that because it's like well that's something that I know I can do that will like measurably be helpful to people and that kind of and like I've I've gone and done the distribution just just one time when they were down a person and like I'm like okay this is something and the kind of like investment in the community of something like 
you know people have this need because they're asking for it. And yeah. that's my friend was doing the grocery distribution. She said, what what is there that's, that's lacking here? And the people that were lining up for supplies said, you know, diapers or we always need diapers or always shorter diapers. And it's like, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, oh, I should seek out more of that and invest more time and money into more stuff like that. And so that does feel like, oh, these are ways like you can, you're not just like, ah, take $10 and get out of my face, buddy. You're like, oh, this is like, I'm, I'm doing something to at least serve the community in a small way. Yeah, yeah, and, and and then yeah, there's another there's another piece here that's sort of mixing around in my head of of one of the things that the effective altruism people claim mm-hmm. have been claiming is that um, capitalism and capitalist growth is the one correlate with better standards of living all around the world, and that seemed to be true on the statistics for a while, and now with kind of droughts and floods and so on and so yeah. forth it seems like maybe investing in industries that destroy the environment may not sure. long term be good for the people who are living mm-hmm. on the land i don't know enough about it to actually say it but I, I think it's certainly there's enough evidence to cast doubt on that assertion that actually just being like the west is the best thing for developing countries yeah. and that they have to go through polluting phases in order to get to wealth like that linear narrative is a little bit you know well i grew up fine kind of mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah it feels a bit the same my parents hit me and my parents put children in factories for a dollar a day mm-hmm. and look how our society turned out mm-hmm. we're fine i'm instinctively wary of that kind of thing but then who am mm. i to say someone shouldn't take a dollar a day to work in a foxconn factory in China, sure. you know, if that that's what they want to do. Or if that's what they've got to do, if there's not yeah. a lot else, if there's not a lot of other options. There's also, like, I think we've gotten, we, society, mm-hmm. Western, let's say Western society, has yeah. gotten so good at capitalism that it doesn't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> like, I'm not, like, a believer in, like, capitalism as a good, as, like, a, but I, I think there is, like, there is a part of me, and again, like you're saying, there's a part of you that's like, going to Mars is cool. There's a part of me that's like, if people are creating something that is worthwhile to people and are and are doing so responsibly and paying people fairly, I don't have a huge problem with them benefiting from their, like, hard work and equitable treatment of others. Like, uh, with those conditions all in one place. But we've gotten to a point where, like, People are so good at capitalism that they can just do capitalism qua capitalism, like the absolute opposite of like art for art's sake. It's just like, oh, I just make money. Cryptocurrency. Right. Cryptocurrency is just like, it's like capitalism straight to the vein where there's no, there's not a thing. Like it doesn't. It's backed by nothing and creates nothing. <laughs> yes. And then that creates value. You know, it's that idea of, you, you know, I make this bread, you give me money, that's a value exchange for value. And yeah. now it's just value in the abstract being exchanged for other value in the abstract. And that sort of, I mean, as we can see, is sort of very vulnerable to collapsing in on itself if somebody yes. uh, looks down and realizes that they're pedaling their legs way off the edge of a cliff, you know? Yes, for sure. And it's like, I don't mean that cryptocurrency is necessarily like a unique evil. It's just that we like have agreed as a society that like this other kind of money is worth something for some reason. And then the cryptocurrency people were like, well, this money also means something. 
then they got buy-in by a small percentage of people. But that's not the same thing. I mean, there's no reason that a currency can't be backed by human gullibility. You just need everyone to be stupid. Yeah, you need <laughs> you to get can, everyone in on board. Yeah, you get. You have to get every single person being like, yeah, that is, it's almost like starting a religion. And I don't mean to say that people who are religious are stupid, but you need enough critical mass of buy-in that it means something to people. Otherwise, you're a cult. Right. That's you have to hit that point where enough people are like, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and how, how what's what what makes you um, special? I mean, sort of bringing it full circle in terms of like making the world a better place, which seems to be the theme of this episode. Sure. How we go about that. Here's my maybe maybe my general point. I don't know. It's not a conclusion, but because I'm, I'm very wary of conclusions. Um, <laughs> there is an impulse to quantify the good that you do, to measure the good that you do, yeah. to have some... We need to, to know if we're doing all right, essentially, if we're making the world a better place, if we're making our families safer. But I think it is very difficult to quantify the most important things. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to quantify how safe you feel walking down the street, how safe mm-hmm. you make other people around you feel... You can quantify things like how much food somebody is getting when you've got these really desperate uh, sort of sectors of society. And I think that's why effective altruism as a movement is drawn to those things, where these this number of people are dying and this number of people are, are yeah. not. And then once you kind of get out of that, once you get the $100 in your bank account that yeah. keeps you from worrying about where your next lunch is coming from, it becomes much more diffuse how you make the world a better place. And I think that's something that you just have to deal with day by day. The impulse of capitalism is, is and the impulse of all people is to be efficient, which means to not think about it, actually, sure. to automate it, to have a $15 come out of your account every month and you know that's going to this charity or that yeah. charity. But actually, I think thinking about it is the only way forward. Like I thinking think about it right. a lot of the time because or the, enough of the time. The more mindful you are about something i think unless it's a pathology the more intentional you are with how you act right and the more you invest in that and i think like that's what i'm trying to do and again i don't i'm one i'm pretty stupid and two i don't (laughs) like i i understand like the the level of like access and privilege that i'm coming to this conversation from and so i think taking that as a baseline i am feeling like you started what am i feeling uncertain about is like how do I do the most for other people without putting myself into precarious situations or like, you know, dipping into like, mm, I like if I twist my ankle leaving a, a bar, th- now I'm screwed. Because I would, yeah. I think selfishly like to guard against that even as I would like to do more for others. And that's the hard part. There's a level of selfishness that we're allowed because we are all selves. Yeah, you have to put your your oxygen mask on first and you have to be able to buy an oxygen mask first. And all like it's this cascade. And there's that, um, what is it? Is it Talmudic? That's like, if I'm not for myself, who will be? If I'm only for myself, what am I? It's just like, damn, the Jews have some bars. (laughs) (laughs) 
this was so much fun. I this is exactly the kind of conversation that oh, I love good. to have, and I'm so excited to be doing my season two of Tea with Alice and and having um, people like you on. Also, a I don't think you're stupid, and b <laughs> I don't think being smart is useful in figuring this stuff out at all. Mm. Actually, I think someone I saw I saw someone say once. Um, it, the more intelligence you are, the more complicated a map you can mistake for the territory. Oh, damn. That's good, too. Which is like, yeah, you, being smart doesn't necessarily help you in figuring out what's right or good or how to make the world a better place. A lot of very smart people are very fucking miserable. I try to be very, I mean, the the balance, and this is, again, uncertain, because I, I try to be as, like, heart-forward, ahead of brain as I can be without being tricked all the time <laughs> because I do feel like and I'm not like doing bits I know this is a sincere conversation but like no. I do feel like I'm like right on the precipice of like being tricked all the time <laughs> and so and that's like the kind of thing where like there and there's also like a certain amount of being tricked that you have to like open yourself up to does that make sense like a certain amount of like inefficiency that you have to allow yourself because of an impulse to like do good in a way that can't be quantified or accounted for and that's like i i that's like a tension i think in my life is being like am i being helpful or am i being duped and if i allow myself to be duped in this one occasion does yes. that keep my heart open to being helpful people that really need it and under the circumstances that really need it does that make sense like that most makes people so aren't... much sense and is so beautiful like genuinely josh <laughs> most people aren't trying to trick me <laughs> yeah just like most people if i get a car most people aren't trying to throw a fucking sphere of metal through my window yeah how many resources do you have to put in place to prevent the occasional metal sphere versus how could you just make a, a, a car that's nicer but the other little thing is that like feeling safe right like being a person with abundance and feeling secure is different than being secure and i yes. have to I, I like really try to think about that all the time too like um just the idea of like probably I'm not putting myself in danger not having a car that is protest proof because I don't think people are going to want to flip my car over and suck my bone, the meat from my bones and like take the money out of my wallet because that's not the kind of life I live. There yeah. is a chance that that's going to happen. But like how much do I need to harden myself against the world imagining that that's likely enough to contend with? So I had this um – really profound experience uh just a little over a year ago i had a baby mm -hmm. and one of the things that happens after you have a baby you are super hormonal for the first couple mm -hmm. of weeks after being pregnant and in this postpartum period you sort of feel muffled and weird and sort of impacted and one of the things that happens is you're incredibly emotional like i remember very clearly, every time I tried to sing her a song that my mum used to sing to me, mm -hmm. I would weep. And and I remember genuinely, without any shame or fear, going, twinkle, twinkle, little star. It's so true. What is a star to a baby? Yeah. It's, you know, like, and having That's this like, full body, like, wow. Yeah. And I thought, this is so important 
because we spend our whole lives building up barriers against other people. Is this person trying to trick me? Is yeah. this person trying to take something from me? Are they going to attack me or are they going to just make fun of me or make mm-hmm. me feel silly or, you know, do I have to be careful? I have to be conscious of myself. I have to be aware of myself. I have to not be vulnerable. And that I, it, feel, it felt like that wash of emotions was sweeping the beach clean because it's not right to have walls against your baby. Wow. You can't be like, I wonder if what this baby's trying to get out of me. You just have to be like, I, I give this baby whatever it needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I hope this baby thinks I'm cool. This baby <laughs> doesn't want anything that it doesn't need. Just headphones. Certainly for the first, you know, months and months and months. You're going to like yeah, yeah, velvet exactly. underground. <laughs> that's it. No, that that's like truly one of the most beautiful things. I had, I, I can't share it because it's someone else's thing that he's writing about but the last two days i've had friends say and and colleagues say two such beautiful things about like being parents that i'd never heard people say before and i think that's so that's like so spectacular that insight that you that you just shared of like not wanting to start building those walls and having the like biological impulse to like refuse to build the walls that's like so tender and beautiful and 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 like i just like thank you so much for sharing that it really makes my day i'm always wary of saying things about parenthood that's like it's special you know like you make it special it's like it's not magic it's but it is this it is a profound experience it isn't a slap upside the head it does shake you out of your yeah perception of the world because if you do a, a body birth if you give birth out of your body and have a child that way it's this experience that's not like anything else, which is yeah. that you literally, and I, and I never understand people who are like woo-woo about maternity because it is so practically profound. Sure. And I mean that in the sense of at this time, you know, on the, on the <laughs> 2021, I st- stood on the barrier between life and death and a person arrived into the world through my body. Right. That's so, like, that's so absurd yeah. that it doesn't need to have a mysticism if you just want to like accept the magnitude of it for the physical fact yeah there wasn't yeah. a person and then there was a person and, then there was. and they came through me into the world yeah. like whatever religion you have whatever kind of spiritual you know I, that's sort of irrelevant to the practicality of what actually happened yeah and so i think at the same time as wanting to kind of share what I found interesting about that. Yeah. I equally know that this is like an area where people are really sensitive and delicate and some people are really triggered by it. So I'm trying to figure out my way through that. Anyway, I could talk about that for ages I, and I will I love to hear it. at some point. Um, but I'm, I'm conscious that I've taken up your time. Um, where can people find you online and uh, where can they support your work? Oh, that's very kind. I am at Josh Gondelman on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, I guess. I have a, a newsletter that's free. It's called That's Marvelous. It's joshgondelman.substack.com. And it's pep talks that I write every week for like people and objects and, and readers write in. And I, I do that. I respond to people directly, you know, on the, in the newsletter. Oh, I've signed up to that. It's so great. Oh, thank you. My um, tour is like winding down, but I'm kind of always until I am working full-time again in something that um, prohibits me from going on the road, I've really enjoyed traveling and doing stand-up. So joshgondelman.com, there's stand-up. I have a book uh, 
albums, whatever. Just joshgondelman.com, you'll see what's there. And uh, But, like, yeah, come see me do stand-up. Listen, read the newsletter. I have a special. Sorry, I'm God, jeez. Uh, I have a special <laughs> called People Pleaser that's now on Tubi, which might be worldwide free to watch, but it's definitely free in the United States. I don't know how I got it, but I did get access to it and I watched it, and it's so much fun. Thank you. It is available everywhere, but I think it's free everywhere now, which is nice. Well, I always love working with you. Thank I you. I'm a massive fan, and I'm so glad that you had tea with me. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. Oh, do you know? This stuff is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle,